0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Great Quarter, guys. Today, I've got episode number 48. 48 is one-third of a gross or four dozens. A little math fact for you. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I've got Seth Holm with me. He's going to come in here in a second. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our episode We've got a lot to cover. We're going to go through seven different care or NAS, ranging from uh, new truck orders to Prop 22, all the way to Uber, autonomous vehicle uh, division U- rumors. We're going to talk about those. But then the big discussion of the day is we're going to talk about the prospects for the next decade being a discount store decade. So basically seeing a dominance uh, by retailers like target and like walmart so we're going to talk about the prospects of that through the lens of their q3 earnings we just heard from walmart and home depot yesterday we're going to talk about the read-throughs to target and lowe's which report today and then lastly we're going to talk a little bit about we're going to give our expectations for some of the other companies so we'll talk through uh, target lowe's tj maxx and macy's what we're going to expect to see on their q3 earnings which come out this week so let's welcome in seth here we're going to run through our own gauntlet of interest. This is, of course, our Ode to See No, Highly Questionable segment, uh, Dan Lebitard's show. I've got two left over from the Venture Summit, which was the last show that we did about two weeks ago. We're going to run through those. But first, got to make a Tesla joke. I mean, we would obviously do Tesla as the Tesla joining the S&P 500 as a you care or not. But everyone here knows that you and I both care deeply about that. So I'll save you the Tesla talk because we've got better stuff. Number one, Seth. ACT Research pegged the preliminary October North American Class 8 net truck orders at 38900 up 27% from September and up 78% from this time last year, October 2019.
1: You care or not? I care. Uh, I'm actually writing a re- research report on this that I've been working on the past few days uh, for Passport that will come out hopefully on Friday. Um, I mean, to me, uh, you know, new, new truck orders were so depressed for so long basically since October of 2018 until July, you know, that you were just on a terrible run rate down like 80% year over year, but then they've just exploded in the past, call it two or three months here. And you're way above replacement, you know, you're, you're nearly double replacement rate. Um, You know, I've also been looking at some of the employment trends uh, for trucking, which they've moved up over the bottom uh, off the bottom. uh, They still are down year on year, but I mean, I, I think this starts to get a little bit worrisome. Uh, you know, investors are already worried about this uh, when it comes to the trucking stocks, because history tends to repeat itself in this industry. And, um, you know, there's obviously the issue, can uh, can you actually seat those trucks, even if you buy them? But to me, yeah, I do care, because I, I if you want to keep those $3 spot rates, those orders are going to have to slow down.
0: Yeah, agreed. I am. I'm on the other side of you on this one. I don't care about the October number, but I'm definitely going to care if we see these type of numbers in December and January and forward into 2021. We are seeing record number of motor carrier authorities being uh, added right now, but we actually believe and the the passport research team wrote about this in last week's trucking markets research report. They said that they believe that most of those motor carrier authorities being added are actually just company drivers moving away from their company to start something on their own rather than uh, new entrants to the market. And then furthermore, we're seeing, seeing the national carriers like Werner, Schneider, Heartland, a lot of the major carriers are raising wages, adding sign-on bonuses for both solo and team drivers. That indicates to me that they're actually having trouble seating those trucks, nevertheless expanding from where they're at right now. And then, as you said, there are some major bottlenecks at the, uh, at the driver training schools. We've, we've talked about this before. Only 57% of the pre-pandemic driver training school capacity is currently running. So no matter how many trucks you get, you still might not be able to find drivers for that so until i see that bottleneck uh you know loosened and to see more drivers new drivers getting into the industry i don't care so much about these new truck orders i don't think that they're going to materially affect the the market uh especially in 2020 and possibly into q1 of 2021 but we keep seeing those numbers we keep seeing a, a 40, 000 trucks ordered in december and january you're going to have a lot of capacity rush into this market to take advantage of those high rates and you're going to see those rates plummet just like we did in 2018 so you're right history does repeat itself in this industry all right number two so this is prop 22 again this is our last one from the venture summit this happened a couple weeks ago but i wanted to discuss with you so prop 22 uh, got passed in california this is the law that will exempt the so-called gig economy companies and possibly trucking companies as well but it will exempt them from the california labor law requiring uh, workers to be employees and not contracted workers seth you care or not
1: um, I don't really care. I think it's huge for Uber, though. Um, you know, I, I used to own Uber stock and, and I, like an idiot, sold it in the low 30s <laughs> because I was worried about COVID. And uh, there was a lot of mixed, all the data going into the Prop 22 vote was heavily mixed in terms of like surveys and other things that people had done. And you were basically betting on California voters to take a ca- pro-capitalist stake. Uh, and to me, that was too much of a risk. It was too binary, but I think it's enormous for Uber, uh, moving forward, uh, because it'll be looked at as a precedent in other areas and, um, kind of takes that risk off the table, uh, at least for a while. So I think it's a big positive for them.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a huge positive for Uber. So just some, some data on this campaign that they had to push forward to get Prop 22 passed. It was over $205 million in contributions towards the campaign, land, led by $58 million from Uber and nearly $50 million from Lyft. So it was the most expensive proposition campaign in the state's history and spent more than 10 times the opposition. Just nuts. Um, and yeah, I think well, this, we'll I think this is— well, Oh, yeah, after, yeah exactly. How much
1: market cap— uh, Uber is, what, $60 billion, and they went up 20% on that ruling so that's $12 billion in market cap for $50 million spent. Not a bad trade-off there.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, this law, it wouldn't be the first time we see kind of a poorly thought-out law passed in California and then changed through uh, props and, and through orders that end up killing it. But this law would kill innovation. I mean, the, the main drivers should have the freedom to work whenever they want and wherever they want. That was the idea behind the gig economy. Uh, I think this is good for Uber and you know, one thing that I was thinking when this when this news first came out that this would negatively impact the autonomous uh, development at Uber because I mean, let's think rides are their cash cow, and especially in big cities in, in California, that's where they make a lot of their uh, a lot of their earnings. And without that in California, that would have been a major detriment. But this is now passed. But this is this story doesn't make any sense anymore. And it doesn't even matter anymore because the next one I have for you is Uber is now in talks or the rumor is that they're going to be selling their autonomous unit. That's the Uber Advanced Technology Group to Aurora Innovation, who's a startup founded by three industry vets of the autonomous industry who led teams at Google, Tesla and Uber prior prior to starting Aurora Innovation. Seth, you care about this one?
1: I do care. Um, From a Tesla perspective, it seems like a win for them. Uh, You know, I've kind of mixed emotions on this one. I mean, I guess I see why uh, I I believe I read that the autonomous division at Uber had burned over 300 million in cash year to date. And so given the pressure that investors are putting on Uber for profitability, and I think they're looking at Q4 of 2021, there was probably a lot of outside pressure from investors and shareholders to Divest that unit. But then when I think longer term, you know, the main cost for Uber's business model and barrier to profitability is those drivers. And so that that is one area. So to me, you're almost selling your, your long-term call option in terms of, and then you're gonna have to license whether it's Tesla or Google or some Aurora's technology back from them uh, in the future. So it kind of takes away that super bull case in the long term. Uh, in exchange for removing, you know, near-term heavy cash burn.
0: Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I I'm definitely with you on that it's great for both Tesla and Waymo. Now, it's like I talked about this during the Freight Tech Awards, is that every autonomous vehicle company that doesn't make it to the next step, it's, uh, it's a benefit to everybody that does make it over that hurdle. So it's certainly good for Tesla and Waymo. But it is... It's kind of sad to see. I mean, Uber had such a head start on autonomous technology uh, than everybody else did, you know, probably eight or ten years ago when they first started building out this autonomous or this uh, advanced technologies group. And it just kind of faltered. Like, they just spent a lot of money and we never heard any good news out of it. While we continued to hear good news from Uber and from, I mean, I'm sorry, but from Tesla and from Waymo and uh, even autonomous trucking companies like Too Simple, there were companies making headway on this major uh, problem, this major issue. And uh, Uber wasn't. So they had a head start, and they, fal- they that, that just kind of fell by the wayside. But in any case, great for Tesla, so I, I can't be mad at that. So I've got uh, four more for you. Let's try to pick up the pace here a little bit. The, the, this one could yeah. be a quick one. This is on uh, Chipotle, opening their first digital-only store this Saturday in Highland Falls, New York. That'll be just outside the gates of West Point, unlike a traditional chipotle location this will not include a dining room or a line for ordering customers have to order in advance on the chipotle's app on their website or on a third-party delivery platform seth you care or not about chipotle's first digital only store
1: i care and i think it's the way of the future and it shows that they're an innovative company and they're responding to the pandemic it's also good for in terms of uh, you know velocity of new orders and margins and you get to put stores where you otherwise couldn't i believe this one's in a suburb of new york city um, so the, where the real estate's too expensive. So now all of a sudden you have this, you know, this little box that's turning out a thousand orders a day uh, and doing a couple million in sales at a high margin. That's a pretty attractive proposition.
0: Yeah, agreed. Super attractive. I do like the idea. I, I noticed this back, it's probably at the beginning of the pandemic. I went to a burrito, I went to a Chipotle place out near Hamilton Place in Chattanooga, and I I noticed that they had two completely different burrito lines. They had the burrito line for the, the in-store orders you could come, and then they also had the drive-through and delivery uh Uh, To drive through delivery and online pickup on another completely different burrito line. So I thought, my goodness, this is just, they're one step away from just taking out the entire dining room. And then here they are three months later opening their first store to do so. So yeah, great move outside of New York City where real estate is pricey. Number five, Walmart announced it will be using space in 42 of its regional DCs to create pop-up e-commerce fulfillment spaces meant to help handle some of the increased e-commerce volume that they're going to see over the holidays. Seth, you care or not about this supply chain decision?
1: I care, and uh, as a Walmart um, shareholder, as as you are too. I mean, I think it's great, and it's kind of like an Amazon-esque move. It kind of reminded me of that. It's a, uh, it's very fast on their feet, and um, I don't. I, I want Walmart. You know, given e-commerce, they just reported earnings this morning. It grew another 79 percent, uh, which is enormous. If you think about Walmart. You know, I'd I'd ask you, Andrew, if you thought if you knew a a company that had spun off their e-commerce and this was a company separately traded doing 40 billion a year in e-commerce revenue growing 80 percent, it's not going to be trading at 0.7 times revenue. I'll tell you that much. And so um, I think it's a way to capture. They've got this this uh, exploding demand because of COVID and it may not be here next year. So you got to take advantage of it while you can.
0: Yep, I I second a lot of what you said. I find it fascinating, and I really find it impressive. I liked what you said about the Amazon-like move. They just made a very quick move, and it seems like they're going to expect a lot from this move. Uh, Greg Smith, the... Oh I want to call him Director of Supply Chain but that's not exact exactly title but he's very high up in the Walmart supply chain he said that he expects 30% of the holiday e-commerce volume will flow through these pop-up e-commerce stores so that that's a big amount of Incredible, their yeah. uh, of their growing amount I mean it's just it's 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 maddening. Uh, so I love it. We're going to get into the Walmart Q3 earnings, which again, Seth said that 79% e-commerce growth. They've got some even more impressive numbers in there, but we'll get into all of that here in one minute. All right. Number six, second to last one here for you. This one is on consumer sentiment. We saw it falter in November. The university of Michigan consumer sentiment survey reported its preliminary reading for November at 77 down 4.8 points from October. Seth, you care or not?
1: You know, this may surprise you. Uh, I don't care on this one. Um, uh, you know that four points to me is not a big deal. I think the consumer's strong and in good shape. I, I have some worries about the restaurant trends, which I, you and I have spoken offline about, um, with the you know explosion in COVID cases. But other than that, I feel pretty good about the consumer. And 77 is still not a bad number, and uh, it tends to bounce around a little bit. It doesn't bother me.
0: Yeah, I'm with you too. I I don't care about this one. Uh, I, I read through the the preliminary you know r- report that University of Michigan put out, and they said that most of this was actually driven by the election. Uh, they said that if you look at the the survey by political party, Democrats pre- pretty much stayed stable, uh, but Republicans saw their expectations for the next 12 months fall a lot. So most of the the fall right. in this uh, consumer sentiment index was not on current. Conditions, but of future expectations, and most of that was driven just simply by uh, their president not being reelected. So, you know, I I don't read too much into this. Definitely, the COVID cases are a big deal. They uh, weigh heavily on consumer sentiment. We've seen the the inverse relationship between sentiment and COVID cases play out throughout the year. So, I expect that to continue. Uh, I might see when the new when the actual number comes out. Again, this was the preliminary number. I think the actual number may even be revised down a little bit further. All right, so the last one for you. This is a Target and Ulta deal, the Ulta Mint partnership here. I've got a picture for it because I think they're pretty neat looking. The rendering is nice. Uh, Target and Ulta are teaming up to bring Ulta uh, Shop and Shops to 100 Target stores by the end of next year. There it is, gorgeous little 1,000-square-foot pop-up shop that are going to be inside Targets. They're going to have about 40 rotating prestige brands in there. Uh, Ulta is going to train the Target employees on how to sell and try to convert some of those people into an already – uh heavily subscribed ultimate um what's the word I'm looking for rewards program the loyalty program there at Ulta. But Seth, what do you make about yep. this? You care or not about this uh this partnership?
1: I care. Uh this is a big deal in the consumer world. Uh these are two sort of heavyweight companies teaming up. Um uh, and I get I get from Ulta's perspective why they're doing it. I mean target's on fire right now. Uh I think they're gonna report a gangbuster quarter here. Um they get to tap into that enormous foot traffic and do it in a capital light, high margin way. Now, that doesn't mean that this is without risk because I've seen a lot of these store within stores uh, over the years. However, even the one Sephora, which is owned by LVMH, um, within JCPenney a few years ago, those were doing $300 a square foot, which was 10x the amount of sales per square foot of a JCPenney. So when these things work, they can work great. I mean, there are some there's some cannibalization concerns for Ulta and, uh, you know, whether or not they're going to release all the sort of most high end duty products, the prestige uh, makeups there. I don't think they're going to do that. And it's just a small test right now. It's only, what, 100 stores and they've got 2000 stores. So we'll see how it goes. But but I like the move.
0: Yeah, agreed. They said they have bigger plans to roll this out to multiple hundreds of stores after they test it out. These are all going to be here by the end of next year. But I love this deal. So on both sides, uh, Target gains access to a very loyal customer base. As I said, Ulta has 33 million uh, loyalty uh, subscribers in in their loyalty program, which is remarkable. And they get access to a huge and growing segment uh, in Beauty. Beauty is one of the biggest growing segments at Target right now. And then I really like this from the Ulta side. Ulta gets, uh, gets to gain customer growth, which has been proven difficult for them over the past couple years. They had kind of reached a mature level where they weren't growing all that much. But they also get to leverage the Target distribution and delivery of their products, right? So all of the Ulta products that are being sold in the beauty shops are also going to be sold on Target.com. So they are just going to take a flat royalty fee on everything sold through their website and sold at the Target shops. Uh, and they're just, like you said, it's a capital light, high margin uh, business. So I, I like the deal for Ulta. I like the deal for Target too. Uh, I'm excited to watch how these things lay out. And I hope they put one in, uh, in the Target in Chattanooga. So all the girls that work here that have been excited about me talking about this can go and enjoy it. But all right, let's get on to the Q3 earnings. We we are going to talk a little bit about Walmart and Home Depot, who uh, reported yesterday, and then we're going to talk about the read-throughs to some of the other major retailers, which report tomorrow and through the end of the week. So Seth, let's talk about, I'll give you some data here on Walmart, and then you tell me what stood out to you. So EPS, so earnings per share, uh, was up it was, was up, and it was $1.34 uh, per share over beat estimates of $1.18. Same store sales. This is a big one here. 6.4% up. Total sales were up 6.2%. Transactions were down, but the ticket comps were up significantly, which just kind of goes on with this, this trend that we've talked about of consolidating trips to the store. Uh, but, again, that top-line number that we all care about, e-commerce, grew 79% year-over-year. Year. Both BOPUS and delivery up 100% year-over-year. Year. What stood out to you, Seth?
1: Definitely, that basket size. You look at that basket size being up 24%. That's if you were to go scroll back through a model uh, a decade or two, that that number would just be a five standard deviation event, um, and it's only. Going to happen in times of a pandemic. That stood out. The e-commerce growth obviously stood out. And then the other thing, I mean, the EPS beat that you just mentioned, a dollar 80 against a dollar 18. That's a that's just a monstrous beat. And um, you know, the stock's trading off a little bit here. I think it, it's at an all it had run into the earnings and it's at an all-time high uh, going into that. And then so I think expectations were a little bit high, and I think they delivered. They more than doubled the streets. Uh, consensus estimate for same store sales, um, and I, I think that the uh, Amazon Pharmacy announcement uh, this morning, which is banging down stocks like Walgreens and, and uh, CVS and, and Rite Aid, you know, might might be taking a little bit of toll on Walmart as well. But uh, I I think it was a great quarter, um, you know, and and I, and I really like Walmart because even if things get worse, as they look like they are in terms of COVID, they're just going to do even better. So.
0: Yeah it's a it's a terrible it's a terrible trade off there for everybody but shareholders uh but yeah one right. more Walmart- yeah. Um, but, yeah, let's, let's go over some, some big uh, high-level data for Home Depot. So I'm going to run through the same numbers. We had EPS of 318, beat estimates of 305. Same-store sales up 24% for Home Depot. Oh, my God. Uh, transactions were up 13% with the average ticket uh, up 10%. The gross margin contracted a little bit because they started selling more wood and some of the, the lower-margin uh, products. Uh, but operating margin uh, was at 14.5%. So, so really good. Seth, let's talk about read-throughs. Lowe's do you think uh you think this has a good read read through to Lowe's these Home Depot numbers
1: yeah absolutely I mean uh they they don't really diverge much I mean they did a couple years ago when Lowe's was really underperforming but uh Marvin Ellison has really gotten Lowe's back on track so I think uh I think actually Lowe's outcomped Home Depot last quarter if I'm not mistaken I want to say like 30 percent versus about 25 so um I I think you can pretty much bank on it Lowe's is going to put up a really strong number
0: All right. So this is uh, is a good time for me to talk about the newsletter that I did just yesterday. So I've I've come out with a new newsletter. It comes out on Mondays and Thursdays. It's called Point of Sale. It focuses on the retail supply chain. And yesterday I focused on Home Depot and Lowe's, and I'd love to get Seth's thoughts on these two strategies. But both of them, as we've talked about continuously uh, over the last couple months home improvement has done very well and the home improvement industry has seen it was the only uh, retail subsegment that has seen foot traffic grow consistently year over year it's been up since the pandemic began they've benefited from a couple different trends so the trends that are benefiting Home Depot and Lowe's is that Americans are spending more time at home and they're completing some of those delayed home improvement projects that they've delayed over the past couple years They've also been a shift in consumer spending from away from home categories. We've talked about this all the time. Nobody's going on vacation. Very little people are eating out to they're now spending things on in-home categories like building a new office or building a new deck or starting a garden. And then also homeowners are taking on the DIY projects in favor of utilizing professionals. They're trying to keep professionals out of their home. They they want to keep their, their home safe. So they're doing a lot of the more stuff on their own. So the two different strategies, this has benefited them greatly. They've, uh, they've gained a lot of new customers, especially online customers. We see e-commerce growth for both companies up triple digits in Q2 and Q3. But I want to discuss the two strategies that the two companies are are employing to uh, try to secure some of those customers for the long haul. So Home Depot is laser focused on this omni-channel initiative, which they call One Home Depot. They aim to blend physical and digital shopping experiences. They've, they've rolled out a ton of new app features and new apps be, to begin with since the pandemic began, including... Um, you know, including house measurements, hardware estimates, cost estimates, they even have an augmented reality digital testing, where you can test paints on the wall or what a piece of furniture or something will look in your house they 've done a lot, but in any case they 're trying to converge the digital and um, and 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 in store shopping experiences lowe 's on the other hand, while they have updated their app and had had a website revamp. As you said, that was just, that's kind of in a more general turnaround fashion uh, led by Marvin Ellison. Uh, He was brought on in 2018 to kind of lead this transformation. He did the same thing at JCPenney prior to that. But Lowe's strategy to try to keep some of these customers is they're adding SKUs. They are adding stores in a departure from its normal product offerings. They stocked up on a bunch of merchandise that it anticipates consumers might need amid the coronavirus pandemic, including exercise equipment, bamboo bedding, air fryers movie projectors toys mattresses battery powered scooters all these different things to try to keep customers coming in and expand the the skus and the, the product offerings seth do you have any thoughts on the two strategies do you prefer one over the other
1: well i mean home depot has been the better company and the better stock for a very long time and uh you know if it's not broke don't fix it with home depot so uh, You know, if it's working, just do more of the same. And, you know, they're trying to move forward with a digital and tech savvy, uh, you know, basically what you described in terms of it's an omni-channel and tech savvy, uh, you know, innovative approach uh, to keeping driving the business forward. Now, Lowe's is, you know, they got to experiment more because they're not a, I would describe Home Depot as a well-oiled machine, right? Mm. And um, so there's not a lot of big fixes that they at any given time ever need to make. Lowe's on the other hand, their margins were way below Home Depot, so was that productivity. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've got a new CEO that's coming in there, has a little bit more leeway to try to turn around the business and experiment a little bit. So I think that's what you're seeing there. And they're probably trying to you know, win over some customers and convert them from sort of temporary COVID customers into long permanent Lowe's shoppers. So on that note, it seems to make sense to me. You know, one interesting thing I know from following these companies for a long time is uh, that I think will be sort of interesting to see what happens in 2021 and 2022 is Home Depot had a strategy to basically go into the dense urban areas with their stores, whereas Lowe's has a much more suburban and rural, call it ruralish footprint. And given the population movements that we've seen out of big metropolitan areas, I mean, I guess you could, you could make a case that maybe Lowe's has the more attractive store footprint moving forward, whereas for the last decade, you would have argued completely the opposite. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out, too.
0: Well, fair point. I didn't even, I did not really thought about that, but that is a good point to see, see if Lowe's will be better positioned over the next couple of years than they were uh, previous. That's a good point. Let's talk about... Uh, maybe better. Right, so we got we got five minutes. So let's try to rush through this last, uh, not rush through, but uh, but hurry through it. This is the this is a Bank of America theme that they've been talking about. The analysts there have talked about. It. They call it the DSD, which is the Discount Store Decade. So they have three major trends that they think will emerge or will continue to uh, to be at play here, and that will make this next decade one of dominance for the big discounters like Walmart and Target. Uh, so the number one is about the, the home sales cycle. Uh, the new and existing homes were up 23 percent year over year in September, and that correlates highly with Walmart and Target's U.S. sales, and then you also see more mortgage applications are up 20%. This goes on to Seth's uh, trend that he was just talking about: people moving out of the cities, moving into more of the suburbs, trying to get more land, trying to get more homes. That benefits. Uh, the discounters like Target and Walmart. Number two is that they're seeing a lot of their competitors closing, right? Whether it's JCPenney's or or Macy's or other uh, retailers closing down, they're not making it through this pandemic, a lot of them, and and we're seeing less competition coming out of the pandemic and into the next decade. And then the last one is what Seth and I just spoke about with Home Depot, but but especially with Walmart and Target, is the omni-channel momentum. They are driving impressive digital growth. Uh, Target and Walmart is that leverages their dominant geographic store footprints and their multi-category assortments. Uh, and it really gives them an advantage over Amazon, something that they cannot do. Uh, so Seth, do you, you have any thoughts? I mean, I know that you are, you are thinking that the next decade will be very good for Walmart. We did an episode a couple months ago on whether Walmart could double over the next couple of years, the stock price that is. Uh, what do you think? I mean, do you think there's kind of just a, a lot of things brewing here at play that will make the next decade really good?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a continuation of the past. I mean, the last two decades have been the decades of the discounters, too. So it's just it's essentially more of the same, taking more market share, getting more scale. And Americans, I mean, the middle class in America has been hollowed out to some degree. And so you've got a lot of a lot more wealthy people and a lot more uh, lower income people and lower income people have to shop for discounts. And just the average American loves a good discount anyway. So it's just a strategy. It always sort of rings true with shoppers, and uh, and I don't think anything will change. And the, most of these discounters, they have a broad merchandise assortment and a lot of stuff that you still need to go in to store to get, you know, whether Instacart changes that in the material way or not. But basically, these companies are sort of un-Amazonable, un-Amazon, uh, if I can say it that way. Um, and I think they'll they're probably the most insulated space in retail, and they'll continue to be.
0: All right, Seth, so we got uh, two minutes and 30 seconds or so. We're going to play beat miss, beat or miss and why on these uh, four companies. The, the first two should be pretty easy since we've already talked about them. Uh, Target, they got EPS estimate of $1.56. Do they beat or miss and why?
1: Just EPS or same-source yeah,
0: sales? Uh, let, let's do, let's do same-source sales, too.
1: And, and guidance, so just the whole shebang. Uh, I think sure. Target will do another blowout quarter just like they did last quarter.
0: Okay. I'm, I agree with you. I think all of the trends that we talk about in e-commerce uh, as, as well as uh, the omni-channel offerings, I think they're going to have a great quarter. Look at Walmart yesterday. I think we're going to see same store sales probably up double digits uh, tomorrow for Target. All right. So the next one is Lowe's. We got uh, EPS of $1.92. Beat or miss and why? Yeah, I'm going
1: to go another big beat there. I mean, i I On, uh, I I don't remember, I haven't looked at Home Depot as closely as Walmart, but it it wasn't as big of a beat as Walmart, but I go with the beat for sure. Uh, The EPS beat on Home Depot wasn't huge because of that gross margin compression, but definitely beat there too.
0: Yep. I'm with you here. I think we see a beat. I think those extra product categories, uh, we won't see them here in Q3, but I, I think they will benefit them in Q4 across the holiday sales. I think they're going to have a, a really strong Q4 as well at Lowe's. All right. Two of a little bit more difficult ones here. So I got TJX. This is the parent company of uh, TJ Maxx and Marshalls, I believe. Uh, so they got EPS estimates of uh, 40 cents. What do you think? Do you think they beat or miss and why? Yeah, I
1: don't here. I've, I've done research on this one. I own this one. Uh, you know, this is a great company. Uh, it's it's TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Home Goods. Home Goods is a third of the business, basically, Home Good and Apparel. That's going to be killing it. Uh, and I really like how off price is positioned in a recovery in 2021. So, be
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I heard, uh, I think. I don't know if they beat I'm going to go with miss. I'm going to say they miss, but I do think that uh the discounters the discount apparel stores are set up very well and positioned well moving into 2021 and 2022. All right, last one we got another I don't know if you could consider this a discounter anymore, but uh it's Macy's. Uh Macy's is expected to We got 30 seconds so real quick, beat or miss and why on Macy's.
1: You know, this is the only one I struggled with. I'm going to go beat because of cost cuts.
0: Okay, Uh, I'm going to say miss, even though if they miss this, they're going to be in in trouble. They will have hemorrhaged money uh, over the past three months. All right, everybody, that's been it. This has been episode 48. Catch all of our new shows live Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on FreightWaves TV, FreightWaves LinkedIn and Facebook or on demand by looking up Great Quarter Guys on your favorite podcast player. We'll see you next Tuesday. Enjoy.